According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As always, our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me this morning in Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. We are uh, moving on to episode number 30, not 20, 30. Typographical error on the slide. This is episode 30 in the last Judean and Prean ministry of Jesus Christ. We covered 28 and 29 last week with uh, the 10 lepers that were healed. And so we're ready now for verses 20 through 37. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. That was the entirety of his reply to the Pharisees. Then in verse 22, he said to the disciples. All right, so he gave the Pharisees one answer, and then he turns and gives the disciples another answer. Is that being two-faced, hypocritical? Do you answer one way to one person, another way to another person? Is that wrong? Well, the Lord did it. We want to understand why he did it and and the context or the application being drawn here. And why is it that uh, uh, the Pharisees have an interest in the coming kingdom anyway? What's their motivation? What's their, uh, why are they intent on that? When we understand from uh, John chapter 11, what they really want is him dead. So why do they care what his opinion is on the coming kingdom? So uh, anyway, let me start with some prayer. We'll get right to it and uh, start to break this chapter down. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come humbly before your throne of grace. Uh, Once again, we don't deserve to be here, but your grace allows us to be here. Father, we thank you for that. It's a gloomy, cloudy day out there, Father, which uh, we acknowledge the rain is your faithfulness to nourish the earth. But the clouds are also our anticipation that the Lord himself will uh, will be returning. He's coming on the clouds, Father. We understand that. So today would be great, Father. We would love to hear that trumpet and be called home. So, Father, uh, provide. Provide exceeding abundantly beyond all we could ask or think. If today is not the day for the Lord to return, then keep us faithful. Keep our eyes focused. Keep us obedient to your plan that we might be your servants in this uh, lost and dying world. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Alrighty. Shortly before class started, LaRosa and I were visiting and I pulled up the Microsoft Word document that uh, I have for the Life of Christ um, notes. First created in December of 19, not 19, 2003 was, was when that document was created. So it's been a long time coming and 59,000 minutes of editing time in that one Word document. I thought, wow, okay. <laughs> I hope I don't lose a, lose that document someday. All right. Lessons in the coming kingdom. So having been questioned by the Pharisees. Now, wait a minute. I thought he was hiding from the Pharisees. Right? Remember that? We'll give uh, perspective on that here in a moment. First of all, we want to get a couple of things off off. Uh, uh, clear from the very beginning. First of all, themes from this message are repeated in the Olivet Discourse. 
Don't confuse Luke 17 with either Matthew 24 or Mark 13. Be, uh, be aware, though, that many of these verses do repeat that uh, a lot of these very expressions, word for word, are going to come back again in the Mount Olivet Discourse in the week in which he's betrayed. Uh, understand that in Matthew 24, that's, you're de- dealing with the Passion Week at that point in time, two days before the cross, three days before the cross, and so forth. And uh, many of the expressions about, you know, here it is, there it is, and false Christ will arise, and don't run after them. And uh, the message about uh, the days of Noah, for example. Many of these are concepts that will come up again in the Mount Olivet Discourse, but we want to keep the events separate. We're not to the Passion Week yet, and Luke is not confused. Luke is not taking events and misapplying when they come in. So point one in the outline, themes from this message are repeated in the Olivet Discourse, but Luke's record here should be understood separately. And I think you can see that contrast um, he is speaking privately here to the disciples. You do see uh, that he's not confused with Matthew's record or with Mark's record because, again, in chapter 21, he will resume these things. Just hold your finger there and take a look at Luke 21. And in verse 8, the surrounding verses as well, um, they're going to question him saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And this is where they are. They're in Jerusalem. They're walking around. He's pointing out the temple. He says, you see, this temple is getting destroyed. And um, so they ask him, teacher, when will these things happen? That's question number one. When will these things happen? The comments he made about the temple being destroyed. And what will be the sign uh, when these things are about to take place? That's their question. Now, in this chapter, in Luke 21, we do have the parallel event to the Olivet Discourse and the messages that are uh, given in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. So that's where we want to draw the proper parallel. We don't want to draw the proper parallel in Luke 17. So he says, see to it that you are not misled. See to it that you are not misled. Now let me ask you, what doctrine of Scripture is it okay to be misled on? (laughs) None. Okay? You can take that phrase and attach it to every single verse of the Bible. Just take that phrase and attach it to all 33,410 verses. See to it that you are not misled. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay? It's a con- we don't want to be misled on any doctrine or any realm of Scripture. However, when the Lord makes it a point to spotlight the vulnerability to deception there, then that gets our attention. That becomes important. When Jesus says, let no one mislead you or see to it that you are not misled, I believe he's spotlighting a prime realm of doctrine that the adversary loves to twist and manipulate and, and, and uh, stir up confusion in. And so, clearly, our eschatology is vital. We've got to be solid in our eschatology. We don't want to be modeled. We don't want to be confused. We don't want to allow the adversary to mislead. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, or I am, and the time is near. Do not go after them. In any event, look at, uh, I don't want to read through this whole thing. We're, we're going to spend some time, actually, trying to set the table, and I don't know the how far we'll progress in Luke 17, because I think it's important that we get a lot of the background that goes into this, mainly because it's it's ripe for being misled. Uh, so you'll be hearing of wars and disturbances. All right, don't don't get all worked up over that. Do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. So if you start seeing wars and earthquakes and things, people get all worked up over current events. And guess what? 
yeah, they're, they're indicators, but they're not the immediate indicators. We want to have the right perspective. And as church-age saints, we have even less excuse to be misled than Israel did because they had a whole slew of signs to look forward to, and we have none. We're waiting for a trumpet. And the first sign that the trumpet's going to sound is going to be the trumpet sounding. <laughs> All right? Know that. No, nothing has to happen prior to the trumpet sounding. All right. Well, let's... Uh, yeah, let's skip on down through the rest of this. So, anyway, you can see there with, with Luke 21, Luke is not confused. Luke is very familiar with the, the Passion Week. He's very familiar with the uh, Bible teaching that Jesus gave as he was walking through Jerusalem and pointing out the temple buildings and the things there. So, uh, we don't want to blend this with the later event. We will handle them separately. We'll handle that later event when we get to it. We want to handle this event, though, in the context of where, where it comes. Now, it comes uh, in the uh, context of these Pharisees asking him these questions. Now, a second thing we want to understand here, before we start detailing specifically with Luke 17, what in the world is uh, in view when the word kingdom pops up in the Gospels? What is in view when the word kingdom pops up? And so, uh, notice, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. So what do we understand when we understand the term kingdom? It's, uh, it's again, ripe for deception. It's ripe for confusion. And we want to make sure we've mentioned it already several times. We've already gone through the Matthew 13 parables. We've addressed kingdom in a lot of different applications. Let's just remind ourselves. Kingdom doctrine must rightly develop distinctions. You've got kingdom of God and you've got kingdom of heaven. Are they the same? Is there overlap? Are there contexts in which you can use them interchangeably? Or are there also contexts in which you cannot use them interchangeably? By which you have to draw distinctions. Kingdom, of, kingdom doctrine must rightly develop kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, and kingdom of Israel distinctions. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of Israel. I think if you keep those three distinctions in mind, you'll do well. Now, is there a place for overlap? Of course. In fact, quite clearly there is because um, kingdom of heaven is unique to Matthew. That's his particular expression. Mark, Luke, and John don't talk about it. The rest of the New Testament don't use, the New Testament authors don't use the phrase kingdom of heaven. It's unique to Matthew. It's used 32 times. All 32 uses of kingdom of heaven are by Matthew. And in some places, in many places, where you have the synoptic parallels, Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. Mark and Luke both use the phrase kingdom of God. Okay? In explicit parallel passages. So, when that occurs we're fine in understanding that they are interchangeable terms. We don't have any problem with relating the kingdom of heaven with the kingdom of God, because where does God live? Where is God's throne? Where, so where is God's kingdom? Okay. But we do also want to recognize that there's something much larger to the kingdom of God than the finite boundaries of heaven. 
Because God's sovereignty reigns in heaven and reigns on earth, even with sovereign control over what's under the earth in terms of those that he casts in hell and has the sovereign maintenance of, uh, of hell and the lake of fire and so forth. So kingdom of God is a bigger picture. Kingdom of heaven is a smaller picture, even though often they, they reference the same thing. We also want to recognize, though, that the phrase kingdom of God is not always synonymous by virtue of the fact that Matthew uses them both. Matthew also uses kingdom of God. And so when Matthew uses kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God in the same passage, you realize he's got a reason for using the different terms. So kingdom of God is used 66 times, including the bulk of them are in the Gospels, uh, 4, 14, 32, and 2. If you want to chart them out for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have you figured that out yet? MMLJ? What's MMLJ? Yeah. Yeah, so you're trying to figure out what would Jesus do, right? You're trying to figure out the WWJD. You're trying to figure out MMLJ. No. MMLJ is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In which case, you have 4, 14, 32, and 2 of the uh, occurrences of uh, kingdom of God right there. And notice, Matthew does have four of them. Matthew uses kingdom of God four times. So it, you can't. it's not fair to say, even though there's journals and theology books that tell you this, that, well, well, they're just the same thing. There's no difference. Matthew uses one. The others use the other. Not so simple, because Matthew uses the other as well, four different times. And in a couple of cases, in the very same chapter where he uses kingdom of heaven as well. Uh, the book of Acts, of course, that was written by Luke. So if you want to add those six uses to Luke's 32 uses, you see it's a big theme for Luke, is, is the, the kingdom of God. Paul uses it eight times. There's also a problem, I think, in kingdom doctrine. There is a problem in <clears throat> evangelical circles where there is a reluctance to teach kingdom doctrine. Uh, or there is, uh, here's the two mistakes. Uh, replacement theology embraces kingdom doctrine and they use that as their basis to throw out Israel. To say, you know, now, now we're the kingdom. God's done with Israel. Now we got the church. We're the kingdom. And they misteach kingdom doctrine that way. Okay. On, in our camp, in our circles, among dispensationalists, there's a weakness that minimizes kingdom doctrine, ignores kingdom doctrine, says, well, kingdom, that applies to Israel. See? And so they ignore kingdom doctrine. Again, I think that's a, it's a weakness. Paul uses the kingdom of God eight times. We, and, and Paul's our apostle, right? The apostle of the church, the apostle of the Gentiles. The Pauline epistles are the primary documents for church age application. So there is a proper doctrine for church age application pertaining to the kingdom. And I think it helps if we understand kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, and kingdom of Israel. Don't blend them all. The kingdom of Israel distinctions. Now, uh, kingdom of Israel, you recognize uh, 1 Samuel 15, 28, 1 Samuel 24, 20, Acts 1, 6. Um, the finite understanding, and even the apostles were guilty of this. Notice how the book of Acts starts off here. After, of course, Jesus puts them through all the anguish of the death and burial and resurrection. He really put them through a lot. And then finally now, <laughs> they come together and they're asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Is it at this time? And even the disciples, even the eleven, are still thinking politically. 
They're still thinking kingdom of Israel. They're still thinking of throwing off the bonds of Rome and, and um, all the teaching he gave them on the kingdom of heaven. All the teaching he gave them on the kingdom of God. And they're equating the two. As if somehow, if the Jewish people have an earthly kingdom that has dominion over the Gentile kingdoms, then somehow that's heaven on earth, or that's the greatest thing imaginable. That all we need is political blessings, and things are great. All we need is a wonderful economy, and things are great. All we need is the right party and political power, and things are great. So even uh, the disciples were blurring the idea or the distinctions between kingdom of heaven and in the kingdom of Israel. Okay? Jesus Christ today is seated at the Father's right hand, but he is not seated on the throne of David. The throne of David is still vacant because the throne of David belongs in Jerusalem. The throne of David is on this earth, and it will be seated at a future point when Christ comes and conquers, saying. So uh, we need to rightly divide between these. Uh, the ones in uh, the Old Testament are uh, you probably will remember from back in the life of David days when we were teaching that series here on Wednesday mornings. First Samuel fifteen twenty eight, when uh, Saul was uh, getting fired, and I love this because he keeps protesting. He keeps protesting. He keeps saying, "Oh, I'm I'm obeying. I'm obeying." And uh, I did obey the voice of the Lord. And, and then Samuel says, well, then what's this bleeding of sheep I hear? <laughs> you know, it's, uh, he's just nailed on it. Well, well I, we just saved the animals so we could offer sacrifices, right? Anyway, um, verse 28 of this chapter says, uh, so Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom. This is uh, Saul's holding on to him. And when Samuel turns to go, then the edge of his robe gets torn off. And uh, Samuel says, well, perfect illustration. What a great visual aid for that. Because the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. And this says the prophecy of the coming uh, anointing of David, which doesn't actually happen until Chapter 16, when the young boy David gets anointed. And then in, in the outworking of time, won't happen for, for a number of years before it gets realized upon the earth. First uh, Samuel 24:20, 20, when Saul finally admits it, that it's going to happen, he says, Now behold, I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. In your hand. So, um, we want to understand Israel, of uh, course, is the centerpiece of God's uh, program in the Old Testament. It's the centerpiece of God. They're God's stewards. They're, the, they're entrusted with his oracles. They're his messengers upon the earth. But they are an earthly nation in the midst of other earthly nations. And it's not, you cannot equate the kingdom of Israel with the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Okay? We want to be clear on that. Related studies. If you're going to study kingdoms, then go ahead and study thrones. And maybe if uh, some things are fuzzy when you're evaluating kingdom passages, maybe you get some clarity when you evaluate throne passages. For example, the throne of God, the throne of David, the throne of the Lamb. Okay, Although when you do have the throne of the Lamb mentioned, it's both the throne of God and the Lamb. And we want to understand that as well. Well, the throne of God. 
Matthew 5.34, Hebrews 12.2. We understand the throne of God. That's where God is. And you can understand that in His presence in heaven. And if you're going to swear by the throne, then you're going to swear by heaven because that's where God's throne is. And you've got uh, principles there in Matthew 5.34 um, uh, where heaven is God's throne and earth is God's footstool, for example, and understanding the metaphor of that, of that principle. Hebrews 12.2, Jesus Christ ran with endurance the race that was set before Him. And who before the joy set before him despised the shame, see, endured it and said, took his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. He is not seated on the throne of David. If you read any of that ridiculous garbage, you're reading the modern Dallas seminary, progressive dispensationalism, and it is a sad name. They call it progressive dispensationalism, but it's not progressing, it's regressing, and it's not dispensational. It's an abandonment of core dispensationalism. It's an abandonment of clear distinctions between Israel and the church. The throne of God and the Lamb is a wonderful doctrine that's developed out of Revelation 22, verses 1 and 3. And it's a, uh, it's a feature of the new heavens and the new earth and the fullness of time. It's after the great white throne. It's after the millennium. It's after the destruction of the present heavens and the earth. And it's a wonderful development there. When uh, Jesus Christ himself is promoted into father functions for the residents of the new earth, the inhabitant, the thousand generations of the fullness of time. If you want more on that, then I recommend the ABC reader over there on the shelf. And then finally, throne of David. Uh, it's a massive feature throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament. Second uh, Samuel 3:10, Isaiah 9:7, Luke 1:32, Throne of David, Throne of David, and you've got to deal with the Throne of David. You cannot ignore it. Replacement theology ignores it, or replacement theology demands that God was lying to David. And yet, Scripture says God can't lie to David. His throne will endure forever. It is a throne of David. It's not God's throne. David's never sat on God's throne. Now, Jesus, of course, is entitled to all of these thrones. He's the son of David. He's the son of God. He's entitled to both the throne of God and the throne of David. Does that make sense? He's also as the son of man entitled to the uh, fullness of time throne there. We call the throne of God and the Lamb. All right, 2 Samuel 3.10. Won't take a whole lot of time with these, but at least you should see them so that you can answer questions if folks ask you about that. And uh, interestingly enough, this is um, during a rebellion when Abner is trying to take this throne. He actually succeeds. Um, well, the uh, verse 9 says, May God do so to Abner, and more also, if, as the Lord has sworn to David, I do not accomplish this for him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul to establish the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan even to Beersheba. And so he could no longer answer Abner a word because he was afraid of him. So anyway, this is earlier. This is right at the very beginning of David's ministry when Ishbosheth and some of the heirs of Saul were trying to keep the kingdom of Israel in Saul's house rather than having it transfer to, uh, to David's house. And uh, Saul's great general there and uncle Abner um, made his vow that the throne belongs to David. All right. Uh, Isaiah 9, 7. Isaiah 9-7. We'll tell a little Christmas story today. Uh, 
course, in the early chapters of Isaiah, you've got the virgin birth in 714. You've got uh, other messages here in these early chapters. In chapter 9, you see um, there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Neat chapter that mentions Galilee here in the Old Testament, which is never significant in the Old Testament. Galilee is is insignificant in the Old Testament. That's why um, the Pharisees were so dismissive of Galilee. There's no prophet that rises in Galilee. They hated the Galileans. Well, you get to the Gospels, though, and a very important Galilean uh, gets our attention. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase the gladness. They will be glad in your presence. And so it goes on down here. You get to verse 6. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. Now I think it's a neat uh, picture in terms of hypostatic union. The child born, when you understand the humanity born into the, the, uh, the body impregnated there in the virgin. But the son given to us is the, the son of God himself, the eternal son of God. The government will rest on his shoulders. He will, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Now notice, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It just saddens me and sickens me the way... Um, Folks are trying to say he's on the throne of David today. Well, he's been, uh, the Jews have been pretty uh, abused and persecuted and massacred. And, and uh, to have the Christ on the throne of David while all that's going on is, is, is uh, blasphemous. Then the prophetic message here in Luke 1.32 The virgin's trying to figure out how she's going to have a baby since she's a virgin. And uh, Gabriel explains it to her. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him, notice, the throne of his father, David, the Davidic throne. The Davidic throne. So, as we rightly divide the word of truth, of course, we... We have very clear distinctions between Israel and the church, for example. Very clear distinctions. We want to make sure our terms are distinct. So we need to, uh, we don't want to get fuzzy and confusing with respect to our kingdom studies. What are the three kingdoms? Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, okay? Kingdom of Israel, okay? Throne of God, throne of God and the Lamb, throne of David. Keep these thrones separated. Likewise, the sonship titles. The sonship titles. The Son of God, the Son of Man, the Son of David. The Son of David. Alright, related studies also must develop the Son of God, John 3.18. The Son of Man, John 3.13 and 14, John 12.34. And of course, Son of David. Who's entitled to sit on the throne of David? The Son of David. And ultimately, the one that's going to sit on the eternal throne of David is the eternal Son of David. And we understand that. Think about, though, this came up in our PMW the other night. In the Millennial Kingdom, uh, when the greater son of David, 
Jesus Christ is, uh, of course, on David's throne. What's David going to do? Okay. And Solomon. And Rehoboam. And Abijah. And Hezekiah. And a bunch in between. I don't have the list memorized. All right. But um, good King Joash. See, they're all going to be alive simultaneously on the throne. Can you imagine? Now, in certain circumstances in the Old Testament, you would have co-regencies uh, if the old king was getting kind of up there in years and maybe towards the end of his life, he would uh, go ahead and anoint his son as a co-regent, as a king, and they would reign together for the remainder of the old king's days and so forth. And it was a common practice. Um, once uh, it actually happened probably earlier than it would have happened otherwise because Uzziah was struck with leprosy. And so he, uh, he lived out his days as a leper and, and his son became a co-regent. Uh, until he reigned alone. But imagine a co-regent with every king, from David to Zedekiah, or Jehoiakim, if you don't, Jehoiachin, if you don't count Hezekiah. But um, all these kings simultaneously resurrected in Israel in the Millennial Kingdom. And of course, Jesus Christ himself reigning on the throne. It's going to be a fun thing to, to evaluate. All right, uh, John 3. Let's look at this. John chapter 3. Uh, we do have a clue, though, by the way. In the book of Ezekiel, David is called the prince. And uh, it's the only time David's ever called a prince. And uh, it's a clue for us, though, to understand that he will reign as a prince under uh, Jesus Christ as the King of kings and Lord of lords. All right. I mean, these ought to be obvious to you, John 3. But we have the same phrase used in verse 13, 14, and 18. You've got Son of Man used twice and then Son of God used. And so in a very short proximity, we have this spelled out here. Um, Nicodemus, of course, is trying to figure out what Jesus is talking about, how to be born again. He says, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man... So there's the title, Son of Man, used in verse 13. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. There it is again, Son of Man. So first Advent ministry, the Son of Man is coming. And uh, no one ascended into heaven. No one's going to uh, you know, uh, earn their way there, uh, learn everything they can, then come back and, and reveal uh, the scoops and the insights of what they learned because they... They uh, made their way into heaven to come back. No, but the one came out of heaven with the truth from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. But then we switch to Son of God in verse 18. And this is, again, what's happening here. Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus how it is that you must be born again. Well, listen to the guy that came out of heaven. He's got the heavenly message. And this is uh, wonderful evangelism material. You can explain this to an unbeliever that this is uh, God's love for the world and his provision. God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Well, now, what son is this? I don't, want to, I don't want you to miss this. I think it's beautiful because you got son of man in verse 13, son of man in verse 14. So the son of man came, descended from heaven. Son of man will be lifted up. That is on the cross. Okay, so you see that? descends from heaven, lifted up on the cross. 
And, uh, and then son, only begotten son. In verse 16, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, his one-of-a-kind son, the unique son, monogenes, one-of-a-kind. There is no other son like him in the universe. Um, so son of man, son of man, only begotten son. God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So he's a savior. He's one of a kind and he is a savior. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. He's son of man and son of God. It's right there. You got this whole section right here that gives you all these titles. All right. And it's important that we understand these. That we're talking about the celebrity of the universe, the God-man, the, the, um, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Anyway, you all know that. You're all saved. But this gives you a, a paragraph where you can see all these verses, and you can see them right here in immediate proximity. But now notice, this was a stumbling block, and the Pharisees hated the term Son of Man. And when you get back to John chapter 12, I think it comes clear. I think it was under the surface prior to this, and then it bubbled forth finally with their derision and their scorn. And so, um, in John chapter 12, he, uh, he says, Now my soul has become troubled, verse 27. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. So don't think because your soul's troubled that somehow you're carnal. Jesus wasn't carnal. We go through angelic conflict testing. We go through emotional testing, soul testing. And uh, the worst thing you can do is lie about it and act like, oh no, everything's fine. If it's not, then don't say it is. Tell the Father it's not. Let Him know. And then, what happens when you start considering unthinkable alternatives? Father, save me from this hour? Am I going to say that? Okay. What shall I say? You know, and some things are just absolutely unthinkable. Defying the will of God. What shall I say? What am I just going to throw away the ministry? Quit being a pastor? Walk away from the pulpit? It's unthinkable. But are there ever times when you're tempted to think that? Are there ever times when the conflict is raging so fierce that your humanity just wants to say, I don't need this. What's this? What shall I say then? And, uh, and it is unthinkable. And then sometimes maybe you feel guilty because, ooh, why did that thought even cross my mind? See, the idea that, uh, that you would give up on a marriage or give up on children or give up on, on uh, you know, a church or, or give up on yourself. And then, fortunately, remember the words of a man in despair belong to the wind, okay? So after you've voiced your, your struggles and you've voiced your fears and then you just chucked all of that and then say, Father, you get your perspective check. What does he do here? For this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, I don't even want to think those thoughts anymore because I want to be obedient to what you have for me. So, I appreciate this. Jesus is not sinning anywhere in this process. He says, Father, glorify your name. This is where he's obedient. This is where he, he in his mind, he's accomplishing the work that's going to happen uh, the next day when he goes to the cross. 
And then a voice comes out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And uh, the crowd can't figure it out. They think, well, maybe that was an angel. Maybe it was thunder. What's happening there? And Jesus says, well, the voice came not for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. The ruler of this world will be cast out. The victory that Jesus accomplishes on the cross is a powerful victory over Satan. The tactical victory of the angelic conflict. And uh, then he says, now I, verse 32, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. And he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Now, this doesn't go over well. There's a crowd that says, now, wait a minute. We have heard out of the law that Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man is to be lifted up? To them, it doesn't make any sense. We think he's going to live forever. The Bible says he's going to live forever. You're saying he's going to die. Seems to be a conflict. Well, it's not a conflict if you realize that death is followed by resurrection and living forever. Then it makes perfect sense. And then also, what's the difference between the, the Messiah, the Christ, and the Son of Man? You say the Son of Man must be lifted up. Who is this Son of Man? Who is this Son of Man? It's almost like, who do you think you are? This Son of Man. And they, had, they took issue with... Uh, the expression son of man. And um, let's look at the next reference. Because the son of David they liked. They loved the title son of David. And uh, it's used ten times in Matthew. It's used uh, in a lot of the different applications. Because son of David is entitled to the throne of David. And son of David's popular. Throne of David's popular. Let's get rid of these Romans. Let's, uh, let's, uh, let's rule this world. That sounds great. Well... He leaves them speechless, though, when uh, he challenges them this very thing on the son of David question. In Matthew 22, 42. Matthew 22, 42. I don't know if you're familiar with this. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. That's backwards. <laughs> Normally they're asking him all these questions, trying to trap him in something. So he asked them a question. He says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Well, they said to him, the son of David. They were clear on their Christology. They, they understood their Davidic Christology, their Davidic throne, and the son of David and all that. And then he says, okay. Well, then what do you do about this? He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? He's the son of David. Why does he call him Lord? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. So if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? See, now you can answer that, of course, because, yes, he's the son of David, but he's also the son of God. And he's also the son of man. You know, this goes back to what he told him. He said, before Abraham was, I am. You know, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Well, he's the son of God. He's the son of man. And yes, he's the son of David. And uh, no one was able to answer him a word. <laughs> They've got no answer for him. Nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. And I, it's, it's an interesting methodology. It's one I've, I've employed it myself. and I intend to keep employing it in different uh, applications. You know, and folks that um, 
you know, I understand where they're coming from, and they they want to they want to. Uh, I've had Calvinists try to convert me to Calvinism. I've had uh, other folks try to get me to believe their view. There's a pastor out on the West Coast that's uh, you know proposes a pre-wrath, uh, mid-trib rapture of the church, and uh, I won't believe that ever. Okay, but he he keeps trying. He shows me some verses and different things. So what, what's my response? How do I deal with folks in different ways? Well, I think Christ gives us an example here. Just leave it with them and say, well, what do you think about this? Okay, well, then what about that verse? Oh, hmm. Okay, don't debate me. Deal with a verse. Okay, deal with a verse. And, uh, and then, you know, come to whatever conclusion you come to as long as you're fair to the text. But if you're going to ignore a text or twist a text or misapply a text, well, then... That's a problem, and you can't you can't get away with that. All right. So, anyway, this is all just background um, for kingdom doctrine, and we want to make sure that we're not confusing kingdoms. We also want to understand that something very definite happens, and we studied this back in Matthew 13. If you want to go get those notes and review those, I would encourage you to do that. Um, remember, with respect to the coming of the herald, the forerunner, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus appeared to uh, be baptized. And the, and the herald says, you're king, right? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and uh, Jesus then and his disciples, they start baptizing. And their message is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Kingdom of heaven is at hand. But something happens about midway through that Galilean ministry where the king is rejected. And they stop using the phrase at hand. The kingdom of heaven is no longer at hand. It's not in hand about, really, it's with the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, from that event, he does not go to Jerusalem. He goes to the, the mountain across the sea. And he goes up there and he feeds the 5,000. And he's no longer proclaiming it at hand. And then he starts talking about mystery. He says the kingdom, the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. Okay. And uh, we did a lot of work on mystery, but particularly because mystery normally applies to church. And we want to see what is mystery that Jesus would be teaching. He's not talking about church, but what is mystery of the kingdom? And um, something changes in between when the kingdom is rejected, the king is rejected, and when the king is accepted. Okay? And so if I may, may I? I may, okay. Uh, then I will draw a picture for you the um hello there we go they're after you doug all right the uh i don't get nervous when i hear police sirens no all right kingdom Keep in mind, when Jesus Christ, at first advent, when Jesus Christ was born, the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Kingdom of heaven was at hand. Okay, a little fuzzy. Autofocus. All right. The kingdom of heaven was at hand. The herald announced it. The king arrived. It was offered to Israel. Simply because we know that there is a second advent, don't allow your hindsight to affect your understanding that first advent could have been the only advent. Understand? That the kingdom was at hand and had Israel 
been humbled and accepted their king, then week 69 could have been followed by week 70 in Daniel's uh, prophecy. And you say, but, 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 but what if? Where would the church have come from then? How, how could we have? Don't worry about that. I don't know those answers, but God could have worked that out clearly. All right. He could have called out a bride. He could have provided a, a body and a bride of, of Christ. And all of that could have. But understand, God knew, even though it was a could have, God knew it was not a would have. Right? It was a could have, but not a would have. They didn't. God knew that. And so the, the outworking of the plan then to call out the bride and, and create the church and, and everything uh, fits perfectly because God uh, understood what the rejection was going to be like. Now, don't confuse it with the rejection with the cross. Because they actually rejected him prior to the cross. Right? They actually rejected him in, in months ahead of the cross and started to plan the cross. The, the cross was kind of the pinnacle of the, re, of the rejection that they had been working towards. But the rejection preceded the cross. And that's when he stopped teaching at hand. He stopped using the phrase at hand. And he started to teach other principles, including mystery principles. Now, they will accept their king. And they will do so shortly before the... Uh, the second advent, at which point the kingdom of heaven will be at hand again. And this time it's Elijah. It's the forerunner at second advent. It's the tribulational forerunner that's coming to make his path straight to announce the uh, coming day of the Lord. So, um, yeah, first advent, you have second advent. We understand right before second advent is tribulation. Okay. Now, yes, the church is in between, but the church is a parenthesis, so don't confuse that. It really has no bearing on, on things except when we start talking about the mystery of the kingdom. Okay? Because the kingdom of heaven, different from the kingdom of Israel, okay, understand that we have a mystery of the kingdom of heaven. And the great prayer, of course, is thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that when when the kingdom of Israel is restored, that it will have heaven's rule on the earth. Uh, but the mystery of the kingdom of heaven is this point in between the rejection and the acceptance. In between the rejection and the acceptance. Okay? We taught this in Matthew 13. I've got more comprehensive notes there. But in between the rejection and the acceptance is when the kingdom goes into a mystery state. And he starts addressing mystery. And some of these mystery messages apply to the church. Some of the mystery messages apply to the tribulation. With wheat and tares and, and uh, birds and leaven and um, uh, pearl and, uh, and uh, treasure. You've got uh, parables and uh, messages of mystery of the kingdom of heaven that apply in some ways to the church and in some ways to Israel. The reason why is because it encompasses this entire realm from rejection to acceptance. And between rejection and acceptance, you have what do you have? You have church and you have tribulation. See, that's why Matthew 13 is such an enigma. Uh, dispensationalists want to make it an either or. This has to be a church chapter. Or it has to be an Israel chapter. And they fight. And there's dispensational authors that are very vehement about Matthew 13 is church. And then there's others that say, no, no, church is mystery until Acts chapter 2. 
And so uh, until Acts chapter 2 and the church begins and then the Apostle Paul unfolds mystery doctrine, uh, Matthew 13 can't be church. Matthew 13 has to be Israel. And so you get this fight. And you can take all the literature and books and journals and put them in piles and say these are the, the guys that view Matthew 13 as church and these are the guys that view Matthew 13 as Israel. And I think the fight is misplaced. That you can actually, it's not an either or, it's a both and. Both church and Israel have applications to be made within the standpoint of the kingdom of heaven being in a mystery state. In other words, we're dealing with circumstances on the earth between the rejection and the acceptance of the king. So, that's another component to our chapter today. And really what we'll... I think the most comprehensive work we're going to do with it is going to come in the Olivet Discourse when we get to Matthew 24. Because to me, that's where uh, that's where folks jump the shark. All right. So these are our related studies. Kingdom doctrine. Now, point three then. The Pharisee questions persisted. Pharisee questions persisted even in his efforts to remain incognito. Jesus is working to remain obscure. He's not going about publicly. He's being very circumspect in how he, where he appears and how he travels and where he stays. And yet the questions persist. Pharisee questions persisted. The answer he gives them is rather cryptic. He offers them a cryptic answer. Now, we're going to understand it fine because, again, we have hindsight, we have church-age truth, we have the, the reality of what he was saying here. But to, um, to them, it was just as, as uh, mystical, confusing, as Nicodemus trying to figure out how to be born again. Or as Pontius Pilate trying to figure out what's this kingdom and where are these armies coming from. Because Jesus is going to speak to them in spiritual terms and all they can think about is earthly. Pharisee questions persisted, even in his efforts to remain incognito. And so you can ask yourself, what's the motivation for these questions? Is there in fact a faithful remnant within the Pharisees? Is there in fact some kind of positive volition? even though the bulk of them want him dead, even though the leaders have already agreed to murder him, and even though the Sanhedrin has issued the decree that he has to die. Uh, we saw that in John chapter 11. Um, are there still some, like Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, and others, are there some that actually want to know the truth? And do they feel a little bit urgent? Okay, I mean, if, if, they're, if they're privy to the, to the conspiracy... And they know that they're going to succeed in getting him murdered here shortly. Do they then, are they all the more eager to get the answers they can now before he's dead? Right? Saying, oh my goodness. He's got our answers. And, and, and we've got to get him answered now before, before we kill him. Right? I mean, it's like the woman at the well. She, she knew... This is a real prophet. This is a Jewish prophet from Israel. I, I can get my questions answered. Finally, I can get my questions answered. And she's not going to wait and, until he answers those questions. She wants them answered now. And you wonder. He doesn't call them a brood of vipers. He doesn't call them 
um, you know, I, I, I suspect that this was a remnant. This was a, a uh, collection of Pharisees that actually had legitimate interest in spiritual things. But the first thing they need, they don't need a developed eschatology. They actually need to get saved. Just like Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to him by night, wants to get teaching, and Jesus says, what you need is eternal life. You've got to be born again. These Pharisees, same thing. He doesn't tell them they need to be born again, but what he says is the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's within you. Literally within you. All right. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. That's a cryptic answer, don't you think? Jesus tells the Pharisees there will be no observations of the kingdom. He says, quit looking for signs. Quit looking for observations. Despite the fact that there are hundreds of signs for the coming kingdom. Right? There's no signs for the rapture, but how many signs are there for the kingdom? There are zero signs for rapture, but there are hundreds of signs for second advent. They're taught in many passages. They're taught in many... Messages including what he's about to start teaching to his disciples here in the very next verse. Now, it's not the term semea for sign. It's the term term for observations. Jesus tells the Pharisees there will be no observations of the kingdom. And we could do some work, I suppose, with parateresis. Uh, It's the only place the noun occurs. The verb is used a couple of times to watch closely. Paratereo is to watch closely. And I think he used it specifically because the Pharisees were watching him closely. The Pharisees had him under observation. And for weeks now, months in in Christ's life, they've been paratereo, watching him closely, trying to find something to trap him with. They've had Jesus under surveillance. Maybe surveillance is a better term, right? Para tereo. Tereo is to keep para alongside, uh, to keep alongside, to guard alongside, to keep, uh, you know, you can keep an eye on somebody if you've got them right there, close by. That's why we say keep your friends close and keep your enemies closer. You keep them alongside, you got an eye on them, you can watch what they're doing. Hmm. And that's what they were doing. Keeping a close eye on Jesus, waiting for something they could accuse him for. And so that's the verb, paratereo, the noun, paratereosis, observations, surveillance. And he tells them, you know what, you're not going to arrive at the kingdom by observation. And he tells them this despite the fact, the subsequent exhortation in verses 22 through 37 and many other messages and passages which demand numerous signs. For example, what we started the hour with in Luke 21. And, and how about Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Daniel, Joel? I mean, all the prophets spoke of the coming kingdom. There are going to be signs so obvious. How about every star in the sky falling away? And then one star appearing. That's pretty clear. <laughs> okay, I'd, something like that I'd see and say, you know what, I think the kingdom's coming. Okay, the point being here, um, for the time being, that's that's been delayed. Kingdom has been delayed. 
It's now in a mystery. The kingdom of heaven is now in a mystery. The kingdom of God is now in a mystery. And if you're looking for political realities on the ground, that's not our age. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Nor will they say, look, here it is or there it is. Geographic boundaries. Our kingdom now is not in a geographic boundary. Isn't that beautiful? Because, I mean, yeah, we we function here in Austin, Texas, but uh, when I go to the Philippines, I've got kingdom saints right there. We pray together. We worship together. We love the Lord. Go to Ukraine. Saints there, part of the kingdom like I'm part of the kingdom. Royal family of God. Neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship, for the Father uh, must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. An age is coming and now is in which the uh, the kingdom has become internal. The kingdom has become mystical. The kingdom has become a heavenly reality. And we're simply aliens and strangers here on this earth. So he tells the Pharisees, no, there's no observations. Again, despite the subsequent exhortation. He's going, to go, he's going to tell his disciples a long list of things to look out for and circumstances and conditions and things. I'm going to outline them for you. In fact, I've got eight points of study when we develop the eschatological prophecy there. But secondly, point B, Jesus affirmed that the kingdom was neither here nor there. It's not here nor there, but it's right where they were. Jesus affirmed that the kingdom was neither here nor there, but right where they were, literally within you, within you. Within you means that the kingdom goes wherever the kingdom citizens go. Where is the kingdom of heaven right now? Where is the kingdom of God right now? Well, where are you? Where are you? You're an ambassador. The kingdom was neither here nor there. This, by the way, is how you can spot a false Christ. We'll talk about that when we get to the fact uh, in verse 23... And they say, look there, look here. Don't waste your time. The kingdom is not here nor there. Keep in mind, we're not, we're not wrapped up. And, and uh, whether we're on Woodrow Avenue or over on Cross Park Drive, does it affect our priesthood in any way? Does it affect our priestly function, our ambassador function, our soldier function? Now, we're very thankful, we're rejoicing, we're delighting to have a new facility. But let's not confuse the earthly facility, the structure, with our heavenly mission. See, we, uh, we appreciate uh, being indoors more so than outdoors. Why? Well, it's more comfortable. It's, it's better suited to concentration and to study. We're very thankful that we're indoors here and sirens and stuff that go on outdoors. Uh, you know, we, we mitigate that with walls and things. And we're thankful to be indoors. When it's 110 degrees this summer, we're thankful to have air conditioning. Okay? We're thankful to have chairs to sit on. We're thankful to have tables to ride on. We're thankful to have projectors to use. Uh, these are just earthly things that we appreciate, we make use of as resources, but they're not necessary for our kingdom activities. Like I say, if we're in we're on a mountaintop in the Philippines, uh, worshiping with the saints, where's the kingdom? It's in us, among you, within you. 
wherever we go, there we are. And I think this is a, it's a wonderful parallel to the... Um, I think it's a parallel to Nicodemus. It's also a parallel to the message to Pontius Pilate. Point C. We're at 11 o'clock. We'll have to end here. But this message reflects the delayed manifestation of the visible kingdom. It reflects the delayed manifestation of the visible kingdom on earth. In a similar way to the Lord's words when he was speaking to Pontius Pilate. In John 18.36. Pilate said, are you a king? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, the Davidic kingdom is. <laughs> yes, he's, he's uh, the heir of David, entitled to the Davidic throne, but not anointed to the Davidic throne, and not seated on the Davidic throne. Nevertheless, he remains a king, but not a kingdom of this world, the kingdom of heaven. And he says, yeah, if I was... You know, my, my uh, servants would be fighting to free me right now in John eighteen thirty six, I think that's what he's doing here with these Pharisees. The kingdom is within you. The kingdom of God is in your midst. Trying to emphasize the spiritual reality of the kingdom, like he did with Nicodemus. You must be born again. Now, this is good. We're at the end of our time. We got through his message to the Pharisees. They want to know... Uh, when is your king? When is the kingdom of God coming? And he tells them, it's in your midst. Don't look here. Don't look there. It's not coming with signs to be observed. He's got a pretty short message for them in two little verses. But then he turns to the disciples, and he's got a message for the disciples. And it's not just two little verses. It takes us from verse 22 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 37. A long message with a series of events, a series of observations, signs, things that they need to, be, to have discernment for. The disciples need the signs. They're already saved. The Pharisees don't need signs. They need to get saved. I think that becomes the difference there. All right, we've got a good start on it. We'll come back to it um, one week from today, Lord willing, and rapture pending. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for this study. Thank you for the, uh, the blessings we have, Father, to be able to rightly divide the word of truth. And particularly since you know, beyond uh, the gospel record, we've got the remainder of the New Testament and a complete mystery doctrine, church age perspective in order to understand what Jesus was telling to these, uh, to these folks here in Luke 17. So, Father, as we continue to study to show ourselves approved, we leave ourselves in your hands to open our eyes, to make clear to us, what do we need to see today? Father, what do we need to see today? Thank you for um, like the, the things you showed Amos and how you walked him through it and you made sure that he saw what you were showing him. And we call upon you now to do the same thing here in our study, Father. Uh, cause us to see what you're showing us and make it very clear that we're actually seeing what it is we're looking at. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.